This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, we're speaking with renowned painter of figurative art, Chantal Jaffe, the recipient of the Wollaston Prize from the Royal Academy. She has had exhibitions in the great museums of the world, including the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art, and the Metropolitan of New York. The intensely personal artist paints figures almost exclusively female with a rare blend of brutal honesty and familial intimacy. I'm pleased to have her here. Chantal Jaffe, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the lovely introduction. A great deal of your work focuses on girls and women that are close to you, your daughter, your niece, yourself, um, your mother. What is it about this tightly woven group of female, I'll say muses, that keeps giving you subject matter year after year? I think I can only really now paint people close to me and that I see every day or think about every day. I find it increasingly difficult to paint anybody. I used to paint, I used to use imagery from magazines and stuff, but I realized recently that that was, I was sort of painting who I imagined I might be or something. And now I think I turned 50 this year and I think I don't do that so much anymore. I sort of I think getting to this age, you sort of think, well, if I'm not painting what really matters to me now, when will I? Have you worked with other people in the past who were sitting for a painting for you who you didn't know so well and you sat there trying to do what you knew you had in you but it wasn't coming out the right way because they weren't important emotionally to you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's funny, though. Sometimes I've painted people I didn't know very well and it was kind of interesting and sort of frightening sometimes. But, for example, sometimes if I admire, like, a writer or something, I'll ask them to sit for me. And I guess that's another way of knowing somebody through their work. So that, like, I've had a sort of thing where I asked Olivia Lang if she would sit for me, and then we became really good friends, and I painted her a lot. And that that was a sort of knowing her through her writing and then knowing her in the real, which was really exciting. It must be a very intimate experience for both of you, for the person who's being painted and for you. How long does it take and what is the sort of emotional hurdles that need to be gotten over by the subject to sit for this probably very long uh, visual experiment? Um, it's not always super long. I mean, sometimes I get freaked out by having them there and sort of have to think of a reason why they have to leave. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I've got to meet my kid from school or something. Um, but that's, you know, unusual. But And I think it is nerve-wracking on both sides. I mean, we I think both people, it's a bit, I always think it's a bit like going to a therapist because we both talk a lot. And I mean, I don't know who's the therapist, but um, there's sort of intense... It's very intense. It's like kind of, and I'm exhausted afterwards. I feel quite kind of drained by it and, and uplifted if it's gone well. But sort of, it's very intense and I'm afraid. It's like having, because a studio is a very private space to, to have somebody to paint who you don't know so well or who even a good friend to sit for you is kind of, it has an intensity that almost nothing else I know does. What does it mean that when you say 
if it doesn't go well. What, what does that mean to you? Well, it's a funny thing. When somebody comes to sit for me, it's always like the first time I've ever seen a paintbrush. So I sort of pick it up and I think, well, how do I start a painting? And then I, I look at the person and I, I know I have to perform the act of painting as if I know what I'm doing, if that makes sense. So they don't lose belief in the whole arrangement. So I, and then I kind of think, at the same time, I kind of like the not knowing. So I have to kind of balance the not knowing with performing. It's a curious sort of situation. So I have to get something onto the panel or canvas. It's like a sort of high wire act, I always think. And then at the same time, often I end up talking to the person quite intensely. And so it's it's like sort of, I don't know, like, I don't know, trying to shoot a picture of a wild animal or something. Like you're sort of taking these oblique glances at them, trying to paint them, trying to balance your sense of who they think they are with who you what you see. And I always, to me, they, the sitter always seems extraordinarily beautiful. But then often when I've painted them, I don't think they feel that. And then I get upset because I, I don't see, I don't see till either quite a long while afterwards or something how I maybe depicted them. So it's a really complicated experience. And sometimes I just don't show them. I'll say, oh, it didn't go well and just turn it to the wall so they can't see it. And what about painting children? Because something you do a lot is children, I would say, what, under the age of 15 or your niece or daughter as they as they get older. But a lot of these are, are really sort of young girls and there's a sort of different relationship, I imagine, when you're painting a child of that age versus painting a 50-year-old. Well, children are, are lovely to paint because they don't have self-consciousness and they don't care how you paint them, you know, so they're, they just don't care. They're indifferent. I mean, especially when she was a kid, little kid my daughter didn't care how you know what I painted her looking like or her cousins she's got lots of cousins who I paint quite a lot but so that's a huge freedom I think that's partly why I like painting children because I mean they're incredibly beautiful children and they have a kind of loveliness you know like sergeant's paintings of children are sort of they have a kind of I suppose just pure life or something that's lovely to try and paint but it's harder as Esme and her cousins got towards, you know, their teenagers now. And then you have a kind of a funny sense of their sense of how they appear. And that that changes it a lot. I mean, it's like it's much easier to paint somebody who feels themselves to be beautiful because they don't really care what you do with their image, whereas somebody who feels they're not beautiful is a lot less. They're, less, they're much more vulnerable, quite simply. You mentioned Sargent. I want to go to some of your influences in a little while, but let's go back to uh, your roots. You were born in United States in the state of Vermont. Uh, you moved to England when you were 13 years old. Talk about growing up in Vermont up until age 13, uh, what the artistic influences were like, and ultimately the original idea that perhaps painting could be your future. Well, it's interesting because though I was born in America my parents weren't born there and so we were sort of outsiders there and now we're sort of outsiders here but um it was the 70s when I you know I was born in 69 so I was in America throughout the 70s and early 80s and in Vermont it was a very beautiful sort of time politically it was you know it was Reagan hadn't come in and it was you know very different but um 
in one way, for me, I look back on that because I came here at 13. In one way, it was a kind of idyllic time because it was, you know, living in a small town in a neighborhood and playing outdoors with kids and just, you know, that was a very, very happy time for me in a lot of ways. Um, And then less so as I sort of hit puberty. (laughs) I guess maybe that's true for most kids, but um, I was, I suppose, looking back, maybe I was seemed a bit weird, you know, or maybe I didn't conform to kind of, you know, the ideas of, you know, I don't know, designer jeans and flipped hair and stuff that were (laughs) what you were sort of meant to be like at 12 or something. Um, So I was sort of happy when we were, you know, playing hide and seek, not so happy when we were going to roller discos or something. (laughs) Um, But we had a very creative childhood. I'm one of four children and our neighbor's mum was an artist, is an artist, and we were always, and my mum's an artist, so we were always making stuff, getting clay out of the river, making stuff out of that, doing batik. Painting, when did that become important to you? When did you have a moment where you realized that, that growing up around all of this art and these artists, that actually you could do something with that yourself? It's funny because we were always making things from the time I was tiny. So, um, I mean, I remember going to my dad. My dad worked at the university and we'd go into his office and he had nothing better for us to do. So we'd lie on our tummies on the floor drawing on what was old-fashioned computer paper with felt tips and crayons. And so wherever we went, we were doing stuff, making stuff. Um, The most profound realization that, in a way, the world of making or creating for me was when I was about 11, me and my sister, um, we spent a long time making paper dolls of our neighbours and we were completely immersed in the act of like both drawing and making a fiction between us. We, know, we told the story of these paper dolls, drew them, augmented the dolls, made a house for them, made a campsite for them um, and that world we'd created between us was a more interesting world to me than the actual real world. And it was both visual and narrative. And that, I think I realized even at 11 that 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 was where the real world would always be for me, almost more than the actual world, if that makes sense. Talk about the 2015 exhibition at the Jewish Museum in New York. You did a series of paintings of influential Jewish female figures of the past century, Nancy Sparrow, Gertrude Stein, Hannah Arendt, etc. Talk about how you went to pick these people, how you got to know each one of them as you were crafting the paintings, and what the experience was like as you immersed yourself in an amazingly gifted group of individuals. Well, it was really interesting because I... I'd started and I'd think of people and I'd think, oh, she'd be good. but And then I wouldn't be able to paint her because I didn't love the work she made or wrote. Or There had to be somebody I could feel close to through their work. So everybody I chose was somebody whose work I loved or politically I admired or found exciting. You know, Susan Sontag or Golda Meir or Diane Arbus. And at first I thought I could just, somebody I liked the look of or wanted to paint but that proved not to be true I I read the work by the women before I could 
paint the more I looked at the work or I knew the work obviously with a lot of the people you know Claude Cahun was an obsession for me for a long time um and the more I loved the work the more paintings I could make of them and that was a really interesting thing because I sort of thought oh it doesn't matter as long as she's Jewish and a woman I can get a painting out of this but that really wasn't the case I had to I had to really love them as a person and the work they'd made. I'm curious, are there any that you started that you felt you couldn't continue with after you got to know their work? Yeah, there were quite a few. I mean, I don't, I don't want to name them, but there were, it's funny looking, I'm in my studio at the moment, I'm looking at the shelf and I, there are a lot of books that I didn't like the work and I couldn't paint the woman. But I had to have some kind of, I had to be able to bring them back to life in my head as well. I had to you know, Susan Sontag is a complicated woman, I mean, and but I kind of felt an immense sense of her aliveness and her achievement and her work, and that made her fantastic to paint. If I, if I somehow couldn't resurrect them in my mind, then I couldn't paint them. What were some of your favorites to do, and what did you learn going behind the public mask that actually influenced what we see from you, the resulting product of the research and your becoming closer to the subject or would we see nothing different is it a dialogue between you and the art and what we see from you the painting would basically be the same well it was complicated because for example diane alvis has been somebody i've been obsessed with since i very first saw her pictures when i was about 19 but she's quite fugitive as a person for me to paint so the one i did of her it didn't work it didn't i mean i i did use it because she was too important to me not to use her image. But it's like the photo- photographer didn't want to be painted or something in some funny way. I couldn't, I just couldn't somehow make it feel real or feel her. And yet, I mean, maybe the weight of my admiration for her work kind of overwhelmed me in some way. Whereas Claude Cahun, whose work I also love, she, something, I suppose she'd also made a lot of images of herself and that was really useful to me. And, there were so many resonances in the images of her, and I, I made more and more, you know, of her in profile or her with her shaved head. Or <sighs> there was something she re- she came to represent to me about the idea of being a woman, a Jewish woman in the twentieth century, that seemed very profound and seemed to speak for more than just Claude herself. It, you know, ideas about gender, ideas about where you come from, ideas about, you know. <sighs> conflict about all those things and and about the history of being a Jew so she you know that you'd start from one point think you'd get somewhere else and you'd end up somewhere completely different I guess it can be very dangerous describing a body of paintings with words and too often music and painting and literature fall prey to descriptions by so-called experts and critics what what is it that people get wrong about you, Chantal Jaffe? I'm just trying to think about it. It's an interesting question. Um, I think there's a great bit in um, in the Salinger book, Franny and Zooey, and Zooey's talking or thinking about sort of about vanity and about trying not to, never to have, to have very little vanity if he can help it or something. He's an actor. And I think I avoid... Like, I'll I'll read things about my work or I'll listen to things about my work, but I'll do it in a kind of, like, I'm catching it out the corner of my eye and then I'll run away because 
I don't want to know the good or the bad. I don't want to hear a flat tree and I don't really want to hear, nobody wants to hear criticism, I guess, because I always just think the criticism is probably the right thing. And I, I like most artists, I think I hold on to that. And, and it's useful sometimes because some, even some bad teachers I had who said quite harsh things I held on to because actually I think that's more important. You know, flat trees, you know, doesn't get you anywhere really, does it? But so I think to even think of oneself in that way of people getting you wrong is losing the sense of yourself being inside yourself and trying to kind of find your way. I don't know, I was reading this um, George Simenon um, memoir and he was talking about how people crafted an idea of self, artists and writers, and that you then inhabited that idea of yourself. And I, I really, really, really don't want to do that. I don't want to have a self. I want to keep moving, you know, leaving behind those sort of hermit crab sort of shells or something. I don't, I always want to think that, you know, in, in a year, maybe I'll be making abstract paintings or maybe I'll, I don't want to have a fixed place that I inhabit, I guess. You mentioned bad teachers. Talk about some good teachers. How does one teach art? You taught for a number of years. How do you pass on aspects of the craft without being didactic, without imposing one's own will and one's own feelings of art and trends onto the students, but at the same time feel you're leaving enough of yourself with them? How do you balance that? Or is it possible? I think it's really hard. I think teaching is one of the hardest things to do. And I think for me, I mean, I've taught, but only ever, I've never done a regular teaching job. I've done sort of bits here and there or summer courses and stuff. But for me, the hardest thing is that everything you criticize or pull apart in their work, you immediately pull apart in your own work. Um, and, you you know, as you're saying to them, wow, this color is muddy, I'm thinking, yeah, and, and yours isn't, you know. So it's a, I mean, even but even that's wrong. You should be focusing on them and really, really kind of trying to imagine your way into being them and how it feels to be them, which is the hardest thing. And yet at the same time, you know, like everyone, I've had incredible teachers, some absolutely amazing teachers who uh, I wouldn't be a painter of much quality, you know, of any quality is not the right word, but I wouldn't be a painter really without the teachers I've had. So I often think about them and try and channel how they taught me and try and remember how it felt to have that it I think it's just sometimes it's just the intensity of that person's gaze on you as a teacher and on your work and what you're trying to do that but it's hard to I don't think I'm a very good teacher I think sometimes I think artists are a bit selfish and it's hard to be a good teacher you have to be really generous and that's a hard thing to do let's talk a little about music um after all it's it's called Talking Beats, and I, I want to know about your relationship with music. Uh, has it played an important role in your life? Do you listen to music? Did you grow up with it? Uh, what What is music to you? Well, it's funny because my daughter was saying, oh, mom, you're doing a program about music, and she was really laughing because she's very musical and, you know, can play guitars and, and sing and and I'm, I think I'm probably tone deaf. I can't sing or play anything. Or I always say that no one is really tone deaf because if you were completely tone deaf, you, you wouldn't know what mood your mother's in when she calls you on the phone and you wouldn't know when to shift the gear <laughs> in a stick shift in a car. So no one's really tone deaf. <laughs> That's good to know because 
I was the child that got asked not to sing it. You know, I was in the school choir just because everyone was. And then they said, could I just mouth the words so that I wouldn't spoil it? <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, shaming. But, um, but having said all that, I love music. And I have an old CD player that I play. So I come in the studio and I put on one of about five <laughs> CDs I've had for about 20 years. And I play almost invariably Joni Mitchell, um, Neil Young, uh, Nina Simone. <laughs> um, I have quite a limited repertoire, uh, Nick Cave, um, of people I like to listen to. Uh, and then I'll listen to the same slightly broken CD probably, I don't know, 20 times in a day, I guess. So I think a lot of people are very intimidated by the world in which you live, and maybe rightly so, but maybe not. So we're sitting here in our houses, and a lot of people probably want to discover sort of a fundamental trip through portraiture, which is primarily what you do. Give us some names of people to give us a primer if we're at home and we obviously have access to the internet, hopefully, uh, and we want a course and sort of the history uh, without being too academic, but to get a good overview of some of the most important portrait painters that you know, some of the people you love and, and some who are rather accessible. I think that's interesting. I think that, I think importantly, one wouldn't get told by anybody. I think one would choose for oneself and not feel obliged to like anybody. You know, everybody thinks, oh, Rembrandt, he's great. I should like him. And I think that's a bad way to come at art. I think you have to find your heroes and heroines for yourself but obviously I have I have people I have loved passionately since I ever first saw them so somebody like Soutine I'm you know I, I it's funny when I come upon one in the museum I kind of you know almost fall to the ground because for me that is the ultimate portrait because it's um it's alive. It literally quivers with aliveness. It's like the person's still there. And something about the dynamic of the paint itself and the kind of eyes and the kind of frantic sense of him painting the painting. Alice Neal is phenomenal. I love the art. I love that she never takes any prisoners. You know, you know that's the person. You know, she never worries about how the sitter feels about how she's painting them. She doesn't care. She's going to paint truth as she sees it so she's fantastic i'm just trying to think of all my favorites there's so many i love birth morriso i love her pictures of her daughter julie i, I mean I, I love man i love manny's paintings of birth morriso of her in mourning in black and then you'll just have an eye peeping out let me think there's so many el greco i've always loved him so much i love the kind of i love that i love that kind of again the sort of there's a kind of quivering, wiggling kind of aliveness to them. Raphael, I'm mad about. Somebody like Lottie Lassestein, she's incredible. Romare Bearden, I'm mad about. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to think. I mean, it's hard. I don't really think in terms of portraiture. I think in terms of paintings or in terms of paintings by people or pictures of people. There's so many. I love Fragonard. I love, oh, I love Rodin. I love well, he's not even a painter. I wanted to ask if you could say a few words about 
Charlotte Solomon. I know you can say much more than a few words about her, but this is the amazingly gifted female German-Jewish painter born in 1917 in Berlin who was killed in 43 in Auschwitz. And she left an amazing series of 769 paintings that are autobiographical. Talk about Charlotte Solomon a little bit, will you? Well, and of course, she loved music, and they're almost like kind of opera, aren't they, the pictures? Tony, even to think of her name almost reduces me to tears, but she's a hard person for me to talk about. But I saw them again recently at the Jewish Museum in London, and oddly, I'd been doing a series of drawings just where I've been trying to kind of almost exercise a kind of experience that I'd had. I think of them as kind of trauma drawings of something that had happened to me. And then I went to see the Charlotte Solomon and it was, you know, when you have a flash of recognition, this is how, oh, this is, this is how you paint. It's how you paint your way out of a hole almost or how you use art to kind of get yourself out of a terrible place. But also, I don't know, they are extraordinary and the ones of her falling in love with her sort of mentor and, and what it is to be a very young woman in love with somebody who's actually treating you quite badly and then the family trauma she's experienced. I mean, all set against, you know, 30s Germany. So it's kind of trauma within trauma within trauma in a family which was sort of littered with suicides that turns out to be darker than anybody could ever imagine. It's funny, though, because when I saw that show, it was in November this year, and I was I was sort of able to cope seeing it. I don't think I could have coped seeing it now because <laughs> because... When I was looking at it, they were all desperately trying to get out of Berlin and it was all about how, how paranoid and terrible society was. And, you know, we've joined her in, I mean, in a very different way, but I don't know, it's like the whole planet suffering PTSD or something. So I guess we've come much closer to that experience of that the whole world can be pulled down a dark hole or something. So her work sort of speaks to us in a ways that, you know, it'll go on echoing forever, I guess. Is it? art's role to comfort us in a time like this or, or is it art's role to be authentic and to disturb to make us think or should we look to art and specifically painting to offer solace right now well, that's a really good question and and i don't have the answer for that i think the thing i miss most at the moment is being able to go into a museum and get solace and actually looking being taken elsewhere by a painting you know to go to I went to Paris just before lockdown and and went to see paintings there was an incredible Degas show at the Musée d'Orsay of Degas and the Opera and I miss that so much that it isn't the same to look online at art and the question of what art can do now or how we can I think we're all scrambling trying to you know writers and artists and musicians are all trying to interpret what's going on trying to observe it trying to record it trying to you know we're all trying to do that because that's what we are we're like the kind of like sensors or something for the world or or kind of you know what i mean like our ears are all twitching trying to kind of find a way to kind of but at the same time you also find yourself in a room saying what's the point you know what is the point in a way so it's a i struggle i paint for short bursts of time and then think and then sort of you know wander off and you know make sort of spaghetti or I don't know Chantal Jaffe I want to thank you very much thank you very much for talking it's been lovely to talk to you you've been listening to Talking Beats I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts 
The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The producer of digital content is Brian West. The executive producer is Doug Christian. I'm Daniel Elchuk. See you next time.